you open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 5, we're going to get right to work. <clears throat> uh, it's a good thing, <clears throat> excuse me, that uh, our elders have agreed to preach Bible books uh, verse by verse, uh, because if not, this is probably one of those sections I would skip, or be tempted to skip over. Um, this is one of those texts, it's, it's kind of weird, awkward, strange for a pastor, I think, to preach, and I think as you approach it, it's one of those text that a pastor will either never preach, or it'll be the one they preach like every January when, uh, I guess, the new season of giving starts. But in 1 Timothy 5, 17-25, uh, Paul's going to explain basically how leaders, elders in this particular um, context, should be treated when they labor successfully, and how they should be treated when they fail sinfully. And the short Reader's Digest uh, version of it is that you're supposed to re- uh, respect and pay good pastors and rebuke and discipline bad ones. Pretty simple. That's it. So you could leave knowing just that, but I'll try to break it down a little bit. Uh, it feels like, and I don't know about you, maybe this is just me, and uh, I say this as having been a pastor for three and a half years. Okay. Anytime you mention uh, money and pastors or money in church in the same sentence, red flags go up in uh, all of our heads, and I think they should. Um, and partly it's because passages such as this that we're going to talk about today have been uh, terribly abused by what I'll just call prosperity-preaching wolves who have used texts like this to manipulate people. doesn't mean they haven't used other texts as well, but this is a, this is a great one to use uh, in terms of control. And it wasn't always like this, I don't think. Um, growing up, my view of pastors was kind of interesting. I kind of viewed, um, I had this vision of pastors as kind of friar tucks, like these simple friar tuck type of guys who uh, had a, a monk-like vow of poverty type of uh, existence, and they earned their keep based on maybe how good their sermons were on a particular service Sunday. I mean, that's how I used to tithe. I don't know about you, be like, yeah, that was really good, ching, or too much conviction, my pockets are going to be full when I leave, you know, whatever. That was kind of how I thought that they were pretty simple and and impoverished by choice. And I don't necessarily think that's fair uh, to believe that about pastors, even though if you look at Jesus' life, though several thousand years ago, um, he was, for all intents and purposes, a a blue-collar carpenter who was relatively penniless and homeless for most of his ministry, and he never took an offering, it didn't seem, other than some bread and fish from a young boy. Um, but things have definitely changed, I think, since obviously that time. And I just feel like I need to qualify this passage a little bit because the loudest and the most visible Christian pastors, it seems, today, and again, I know it's a very general statement, but the ones in America that we know uh, very well uh, because they're on TV or they have all kinds of books going out, It seems like, and I'm not trying to throw them under the bus, but it seems like these guys, as representatives of what it means to be Christian or from the from the world's perspective, have extravagant or spend extravagant amounts of money on these gigantic mega churches on really huge mega lifestyles. That's just what it looks like, for being honest. Um, And I've never, quite frankly, I never really wanted to get paid as a pastor. Okay, that was not my idea. I somewhat got forced into that by the elders. I fought it for a long time. And I don't say that because, you know, this is like, oh, look at me, I don't want to be paid. I just, that was my mentality. And before I was a pastor, I had a hard time understanding what the SNARF pastors did with all their time that would necessitate a salary. I really didn't know. It's like, what could they possibly do with all that time that they have? And the idea was probably perpetuated by going to Bible college and meeting a lot of young guys who, instead of actually getting a real job, uh, decided to pursue ministry or maybe even plant a church uh, as an excuse not to actually work. And that wasn't my mentality. That's not how I I was raised. And when Jesus called me to plant a church, I actually committed to uh, teaching part-time indefinitely. That was kind of the plan. Like, I just keep going uh, as a high school teacher part-time, whatever. The first couple of years I was full-time, but you know, as we slowly um, grew, then that maybe I would be able to go part-time. But I 
actually, I think I might have even written it down somewhere, like we'll never support a full-time pastor on our staff. And though that sounds good, I mean, really, it sounds good even now. It's not necessarily biblical, which is kind of a problem when you uh, take stands on things. That's why you should be very careful throwing verses down on different positions you have, uh, practically speaking, as a church. Uh, But for the first couple years, that's how we rolled. I worked full-time as a teacher, and slowly worked part-time as a teacher, and never even thought twice about giving. Didn't think about it for a second. Could care less if anyone showed up. My wife was going to be there. I could yell at her. I mean, it didn't matter. didn't matter. But at some point, things got um, overwhelming. And something had to change because I was going to fail somewhere because of it was just too much. I was either going to fail as a, a, a husband, I was going to fail as a dad, I was going to fail as an English teacher, or I was going to fail as a pastor. Well, the husband and dad aren't really negotiable. You can't go, well, I'll just not be a dad. Pastors have done that. Maybe not consciously, but they've done that. Well, I'll just kind of sacrifice. I wasn't going to sacrifice those things. So I had teaching and preaching. Uh, what's Jesus telling me to do right now? And so, painfully so, I let teaching go. I let teaching go. And, again, I argued for it. I tried to convince the elders I could, oh, I could stick with it. And they told me in no uncertain terms to quit. And I say all of that so that as we approach this passage, you know my heart. Um, I, I'm not here. I don't do this for a paycheck or for popularity. I really don't. I would do it for free. I would do it for free. And I would do it with joy. So I will speak then, knowing that, I will speak with these hard verses, I think, with authority. About how the church, all of us, it's not like Sam and the church, the church is commanded to support good pastors. And commanded to discipline bad ones. And I'll do so with a clear conscience. So if you follow along with me in 1 Timothy 5, with that Wonderful stage set. We will read the first, uh, beginning of verse 17 to the end of chapter 5. And it says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the Scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, As for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing from partiality. Do not be hasty in laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. little parenthetical, no longer drink only water, but use a little wine for the sake of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Verse 24, the sins of some men are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but the sins of others appear later. So also good works are conspicuous, and even those that are not cannot remain hidden. So Timothy has is, is been commanded and charged to do a lot of different things in cleaning up this church. And without a doubt, we all know, because we've seen them, maybe experienced them, there are good pastors and there are bad pastors. There are pastors who rule well as this used, the word rule here is, is used, and pastors who lead or rule poorly. And though Paul gives us qualifications in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus about what is a good pastor and what is a bad pastor, I, I think he does that so we don't create our own personal preferences, which is very easy to do. The guy's a good preacher. Guys, young, old, educated, not, whatever, all these things that aren't necessarily biblical, but we go, this is what makes a good pastor. Paul gives us the pastoral letters to help judge not only the health of churches, but the health of pastors and whether or not they should be pastoring. They are for those who rule or lead or pastor like us to keep you know, elders accountable and say, we should be reading these, this is what we should be doing, guys. And it's also for the church to say, this is what you should be doing. Are you doing this? Are you not? They're very good rubric 
for what a healthy church should look like and what a healthy pastor should be doing. And it tells us in very clear terms, first and foremost, who categorically should not be pastoring, the kind of person who should not be pastors. We can say with confidence, because of these letters, that active addicts, and I say that because someone who was an alcoholic at some point in their life, I don't think should never pastor, but without question, addicts should not be pastors, womanizers should not be pastors, violent men should not be pastors, gay men should not be pastors, undisciplined men should not be pastors, greedy men should not be pastors, women, even if they're fantastic, wonderful, excellent teachers, which there are tons of them, they're in the Bible, they're in this church, and they teach and do well. The Bible says they shouldn't be pastors. Bad husbands should not be pastors. Bad fathers should not be pastors. And men who don't or can't teach the Bible should not be pastors. This is pretty cut and dry with those. We can also say that churches who ignore or elders who ignore these kind of commands, and they either install men like this or they refuse to remove men who prove disqualified, they rule poorly. They rule poorly. And they should be called on it. And I think that we can say they are not worthy of double honor. Perhaps they're worthy of double dishonor because in their poor rulership, they are actually bringing shame to the name of Jesus and they bring shame to the church, his bride. But there are those qualified pastors who rule well. And the Bible says that they should be considered worthy of double honor. They should be literally valued as worth twice the price, is the term. Not necessarily paid that. Okay? That's important. Emphasis on considered. Now, double honor means that I believe they're given two things. According to Scripture, they're given honor and what might be considered an honorarium. Respect and a decent wage. You should ask, like, how do we know what Sam's being paid? You certainly can ask. Email Chris. He'll tell you exactly what I'm being paid. You should know that if it's important to you. Maybe you could care less. How did you ever determine a salary? Great question. Basically, was the teacher. We measured according to the teacher. Now, if you know anything about teachers... They're not the wealthiest people in the world. But for me, that's what I felt comfortable with doing because it was a similar, I felt, occupation. But without question, they should get a decent wage. And some people have determined or defined or interpreted this passage as double honor, meaning double pay, double stipend. Now, while tempting, <laughs> what a great one. Let me tell you what this verse means. While tempting to tell you that's what it means, I don't think... It means that, and I actually believe that such an interpretation is woefully dangerous. And it's dangerous because it leads for pastors, and I just know my own heart, it leads to pastors for a false sense of entitlement, where they actually become even subtle or more active prima donnas, wearing ring-pop-sized jewelry that you've probably seen on some people, gold chains, driving Hummers, flying helicopters sitting in golden thrones on TV with freaky hair, and living in mansions that the average member can't afford. That's a problem. Huge problem. No one's saying live in poverty, live like Jesus, sandals, walking the you know, world. But at the same time, we don't say it's double pay. And we should know, and this is humbling, this is where I sat this week, that pastors in this passage are compared to livestock in the field. Okay? Livestock in the field, not royalty in a castle separated from the peasant class. They're livestock in the field. Now, that doesn't give the church permission to treat them like cows that they can command. Although that happens too. Do this, do that. You're the pastor, right? The pastor is to be like an ox. An ox. An animal that is always, is born to, it is raised to work hard. Getting down and dirty, pulling heavy loads with blood, with sweat, with tears, suffering in the fields. With his only reward being the fruit of his labor. Not just rewarded because he's an ox. There was a part of the Mosaic Law back in Deuteronomy, might be 25, 
where God actually commanded them to unmuzzle the ox, take the muzzle off so its mouth can eat, as it worked. That was a blessing and unusual or distinct from the other kind of peoples of the day. Because they deserved fruit from the labor. And a pastor, catch this, a pastor who only demands to be served without leading and working hard to serve deserves nada. Nothing. They deserve absolutely nothing. They don't deserve anything just because they are to be an ox. And Paul says that the church is supposed to give... This is silly, but I, I, I have difficulty preaching this. I'll tell you this right now, okay? Because here's... I know I preach the most here. So, give special attention to those who burden teaching and preaching. Give special attention to Sam. That's pretty much what it's saying. I don't like that. It makes me feel uncomfortable, but that's what the Scriptures say, and this is by nature of what I do most of the time. Now, we work hard not to polarize things around Sam or anyone. So we intentionally set other people to teach, to develop, to send out. You're not going to see Sam Ford broadcast on screen somewhere. When we plant a church, it'll be a real church plant with a real pastor who really preaches. Okay? So, I understand when I say that, I'm talking about myself, but the, the lead ox, if you will, they're all oxes, but the lead ox devotes most of his work to preaching and teaching and defending the gospel and gospel truth and gospel doctrine. Why? Because bad theology, bad teaching, produces bad behavior, broken churches, and unhealthy people. That's what happens. It always starts with bad theology. And so, in other words, churches have to commit, first and foremost, before an awesome building, before rock and music, before chairs that don't make your bottom numb after 40 minutes, before all of those things, the church has to be committed to Bible saturation and Jesus-centered everything. It has to be before everything else. And in order to do this, you have to have solid Bible preaching that's longer than a 20-minute you know, little statement of story or whatever to discipleship that equips people and leadership development that sends more people out to actually teach others. Now, I recognize, well, I should say, this all means that a church has to decide to invest in a pastor, first and foremost. And I recognize that many of you, some have been with us a little bit, some have been, and we have another service, obviously, that is pretty full as well. And a lot of those people have been with us since the beginning. Some have just been with us a short time. And I will say that over the last three and a half years, many of you have made a personal, material, and energy investment in Damascus Road Church. And in many ways, in me. In many ways, in me. And that's incredibly humbling. And you've watched patiently me grow as a pastor and screw up. And you've watched and waited as I've grown and continue to grow and will grow as a preacher. And you've invested. It's an investment. A lot of people don't make that investment. They go from church to church going, don't like the guy? Move on. He's not serving me. They move on. And many of you haven't. I remember... When we were, you know, 20 people, and people came in, and I'm like, wow, why are they ever going to stay? I can't believe they would stay. And they did. And they chose to sacrifice some things, maybe good preaching, for the purpose of investing in a church and really in, in sometimes in a man. And so that's humbling, and I pray that all the elders, including myself, will work hard to make you understand that we're trying to work as oxes to make your gospel investment worth it. Now, the first part of double honor, I believe, is respect for the office. And that, that comes in the form of encouragement. It comes in the form of obedience and trust and prayer. You should pray for your leaders. And it's easy to do that, I think, to respect and to obey and to trust and to pray for when you see them working like an ox, a humble ox. I think that's incredibly important. The second part of the honor, then, is, is being supported by those he serves. So he can take care of his family, 
and not be distracted from devotion to the Word because he has to work a second job, which I tried to do for some time. And I was able to do it for some time. But a lot of people go, well, Paul didn't do that. And that's the model I took. Well, Paul, man, he, went, he made tents. He went and made tents and then preached. Why can't we just do that? But Paul himself says that's an exception. If you read 1 Corinthians 9, he says, I have the right, as all apostles do, to make use or to be supported. And he actually says, you can read, I'll read just a couple verses out of 1 Corinthians 9, verse 13. He compares it to the Old Testament temple servants, and he says, Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That was a huge step of faith for me. I had a paycheck coming from the state, guaranteed every year. I had a raise every year. I had vacation every year. I could tell you exactly what it was the year before. I'm going to get these two weeks off during Christmas, this winter break, this summer. It's fantastic. I remember, I was telling my wife this, our 10-year anniversary, we got blessed with a trip to Hawaii. And we went to Hawaii, and I was, it was the summer, I think, either before, I can't remember, it was before we planted the church, and I was making a, a pro-con list of teaching and preaching. And outside of teaching was all like, guaranteed paycheck, vacation. Preaching was like, obey Jesus. Okay, well, what about this other stuff, though? All right? <laughs> One list was really short. It was really impressive. So, it was hard to do that, to depend on the gospel for my living. And to start, you know, I'll be really frank with you, it's pretty awesome when we can go rent a church, all we need is like, five, I mean, rent a, rent a school, of which ended up being like several thousand dollars. When we first started, it was like a thousand bucks, I think, to rent the school. That's all we need. We just got to come up with a thousand bucks. We got, we got ten families, we can come up with that. And not even think about money. What happens, honestly, is things start taking off and then you suddenly have to start working and you start thoughts going to your mind that are disgusting and wrong and evil. How many people were there today? What was the giving like? You start having this pressure that wasn't there before. So that was a step of faith for me personally to go... So, In other words, don't think I enjoy... I enjoy preaching, love it, but to have dependence upon God like that, difficult for me. It's difficult because I was dependent upon the state. They were really reliable. All right? Sounds ridiculous to say, but that's the truth. So I, I use Paul as an example, but he was the exception, not the rule. And there's a huge difference, I believe, saying between someone saying, I'll do this though I don't want to, and you owe me because I'm doing this. Huge difference. Red flag. Red flag, red flag, when a pastor or anyone focuses more on the reward, the expected reward, the promised reward, and not the expected responsibility or the service. Huge red flag, if you hear that. And that's the same for all of us. It's, it's amazing to me that we, we often expect change or reward without any work. We expect like, well, I'm supposed to be honored. You're what about the ox part? We always focus, I, I always hear pastors preaching. I hear pastors even Acts 29 talking about that. And I think, it's, I think it's good for a church to burden having to support a pastor. It's a good thing. It's a biblical thing. But this double honor thing has just been disgusting to me and it's bothered me. But the funny thing is that as, as husbands and dads and moms and, and, and even just women and, and men, we often expect all kinds of fruit like that without actually working. We have this sense of entitlement. We have pastors who expect honor without living actually honorably or working. You have husbands expecting respect but refusing to actually lead. You have wives expecting love while refusing to show respect. You've got people expecting close-knit community. I don't have community. I don't feel connected. Without actually working for any relationships, it's expecting it to come. You've got parents expecting obedience for their kids, but refusing to actually work in shepherding them. You've got all kinds of people expecting freedom from their sin, like it's just a light switch that goes on, without actually working and pursuing the glory of God. There's this work aspect that just gets lost, and pastors are just as guilty, but the rest of the church is as well. So, 
Remember, we work, I think it might be a tattoo coming up, but we work from our righteousness, not for it. We work from our righteousness, not for it. But we work! We still work! There's a verse that a brother gave me this week that was awesome. I hadn't even seen it. I've been studying the book of Colossians, and he's like, what about this verse? I'm like, oh my gosh, I've read that like six times this week, and I didn't see it. Colossians 1.29, when Paul talks about his own work, he says, and he talks about proclaiming the gospel before this as his work, and he says, for this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. Oh, what a beautiful verse. I work, but it's God doing it. But I work, but it's God is empowering me. Oh, what a fantastic verse. That could be another tattoo verse. Verse 19. So having too many good pastors in Ephesus isn't really the problem for Timothy. Too many good pastors that work really hard. That's not the problem. Ephesus has several bad pastors and Timothy has to deal with them. Young Timothy. And Paul prepares Timothy to deal with a flood of accusations that's probably going to start when he starts cleaning house. And it's likely that, that once uh, the bloodshed, if you will, begins from him you know, shooting wolves, the smell of blood's going to ignite some kind of feeding frenzy. And all kinds of, well, yeah, well, this happened. All kinds of accusations are going to come. And Paul says in verse 20, don't admit a charge against any elder, as he begins to talk about bad pastors, having talked about good ones, against any elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses, which was really Mosaic law for anything. That's why you see in Jesus' own trial, they bring up witnesses who were basically uh, giving false testimony and confusing or in, uh, contradicting one another, but they do that to try and keep in line with the law. The truth is, pastors uh, are very easy marks for criticism. I've not been criticized more in my life until I became a pastor. And some warranted, I understand that. But there's a difference between criticism and the charge that, that Timothy is, is, or Paul is talking about here. A criticism is, is the act of, of passing judgment on, on the merits of something. It can be constructive, where you criticize something for the hopes of improving it. That's a good thing. You can also have, and maybe more commonly, deconstructive criticism, where you're basically assessing something or evaluating something, looking for its weaknesses so you can destroy it and condemn it. And when an accusation is thrown out, the pastors have to take time to discern whether this critic is a committed sheep that needs to be listened to, because that happens. I used to believe, you know, in my, my youth, as you go further and further back, that you have everything figured out, and no one could possibly be right. And if a criticism comes, they must be wrong. It's just figuring out exactly where they're wrong. So I have humbly accepted the fact that I can be wrong. And criticism come, although poorly in the form of emails oftentimes, there's something there sometimes. So, is it maybe a committed sheep that needs to be heard? But it might be a lost sheep that needs to be educated. It might be a goat that needs to be ignored, making lots of noise. Or it might be a wolf that needs to be shot. That's when criticisms come. It's like, that's the filter. You know, whatever. They figured out. Now, Paul already told Timothy how to respond to criticism. He said, you know, when people despise you for your youth and they're talking down to you and all those types of things, he said, live a godly life and devote yourself to preaching God's Word. That'll cover just about everything of criticism. And here he's told, though, with charges not to accept every charge, not to hear every charge. And our charge is, is much more formal and explicit. It's an accusation of sin brought against, in this case, a leader of a church. It's not like, I don't like that you do it this way, but that you did this, and it's sinful. You hurt me, you hurt this person, you have sin. So Paul instructs him only to accept this accusation if supported by witnesses. And it doesn't mean, we kind of think like witnesses, like they have to observe it in the moment. But it is witnesses like you'd have in a court of law. And after 
If that accusation has witnesses, the elders listen to it. And if the accusation against the elder, the charge is found to be true by the other elders, then the elders are not to save face by covering up the sin, which is very common. They are instead to confront whoever it is. And the confrontation should result in one of two things. Public repentance or public rebuke. One of those two. Why? Because the guy is a public figure. So the whole idea of like, oh, go to them individually. We're in a new category with leaders, which we don't like if you're a leader. And I'm preaching this as a leader. Okay? Public repentance or public rebuke so as to put the fear of God in the rest. Who are the rest? The elders, number one. The other leaders. And then the church. He says in verse 20, As for those who persist in sin, unrepentant, rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus and of the elect angels, I charge you to keep these rules without prejudging, doing nothing for partiality. So he's speaking about calling out by name, which Paul does in First and Second Timothy. By name, pastors who preach and live out false truth in their church community or their home. Because there's a integrity. It's not just, well, I can be like this here and here and here. Pastors not only then receive double honor, according to Paul, but they get, according to James as well, a double dose of judgment. They have a stricter judgment. In fact, they are handled less gently than a brother who was just caught in sin. You're not going to publicly rebuke every single sinner that's caught in sin. You're going to go through this Matthew 18 process. I believe that applies in some level, but there is a stricter level of judgment that leaders have. So the practice of church discipline, and I don't know if you've ever, if people have ever seen church discipline actually exercised in a church. Sometimes it's, you know, I've seen churches that get up and they're like, all right, you know, uh, Tony and Tina, uh, they have sinned in that uh, Tina had an affair, and Tony wants to be reconciled, and Tina does not, and they just kind of lay out what kind of disfellowship you should have. He's like, holy smokes. Like, you guys are serious about this. You, like, really follow the Bible. Wow. Right? Or maybe you get, like, members get together, they write a little membership letter, and, you know, however it's done, you've seen it maybe done poorly or well. But church discipline has to begin and should begin with its leaders so that it might impartially be exercised with its members. And there is a double standard. The leaders are supposed to have stricter judgment. The problem is, as you flip it over, most of the time in the world, double standard goes the other way. Where the leaders are protected. Why? Because they're trying to save face and they actually will justify by going, well, we want to save the reputation of the bride. Catch this. Church discipline, a God-given thing. Paul instructs Timothy to exercise this especially with leaders, is protecting the reputation and purity of the bride. That is. It's not protecting the reputation of the bride to hide some screw-up from a leader. And I'm talking a major false teaching, sinful type of screw-up, not just like the guy in lustful thought. Okay? It does protect the purity of the bride. Without standards of discipline that the leaders are subject to, you become a church full of unbiblical, spiritual-feeling fluff nuts who ignore sin in their lives because they're led, honestly, by spineless leaders who are teaching wrong truth and they're more scared about their own reputation than they are about the reputation of Jesus and His bride. That's a problem. Major problem. As a rule, good pastors who love Jesus lovingly confront others when they see sin. And without compromise, without showing favoritism, without prejudging good or bad. I say that because oftentimes we have relationships with people and we give them the benefit of the doubt. We let, well, man, this guy's, you know, we have so much history with this person. How could. 
That's called prejudging. When you see sin, you don't compromise. Certainly do it with gentleness, but not with reluctance. And we do this simply because we know as leaders, we are judged more strictly than anyone else by the judge. Again, Hebrews 13, 17 is one of those verses where you spend most of your time on the first part of it and not the second part. Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them. They're like, yeah, come on. Hebrews 13, 17. And it's like, ooh, that feels yucky. But that's the honor piece that I think Paul is talking about. And I think it's right. But check out the next part. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. I will be judged. Mark will be judged. Chris will be judged. Jim will be judged. Aaron will be judged. We will be judged for how we judge and lead. You will not. And so as we exercise discipline, all church discipline is exercised, as Paul writes here in verse 21, before the throne of God. Constantly watching. And when we fail to judge rightly, we will pay a consequence for that. I mean, we're going to be kicked out of heaven, but it might be a good old-fashioned spanking waiting for us when we get up there. I'm pretty sure a spanking from Jesus is going to hurt. So, but that's, that's a stricter judgment. and something that I think you need to understand whenever, whenever I feel it necessary to rebuke somebody, to confront a pastor, whether it be in our church or others, I do so knowing they do so before the throne of God. First and foremost, not for the approval of men. Verses 23 and 20 through 25. So we're not to be eager to find things to discipline, but we're not to be reluctant to discipline when, when things are found. And Timothy is charged to be quick to confront bad pastors, but slow, measured, and intentional about installing new pastors because appearances can be very deceiving. And he says, do not be hasty in laying on hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. We dropped out verse 23 there. I think uh, verse 23 is interesting because uh, he, he's probably pretty stressed out. It's difficult to confront people. And we'll, uh, we'll talk on that later. But the sins of men, verse 24, are conspicuous going before them in judgment, but the sins of others appear later. And so also the same with good works. So like selective hearing, which kids are really good at having, and husbands too, we often have selective sight. And we install and follow the wrong leaders while ignoring and dismissing the right ones. And unfortunately, in our fast-paced culture, I think, we, we tend to make um, a lot of decisions like this. And as a result, we bring in good-looking leaders, figuratively speaking, who are actually bad. And when good leaders start preaching and living badly, and you realize that uh, this is actually a bad leader, as they're preaching in your church, preaching in your home, wherever you have um, encountered them, you begin to experience conflict and chaos. And you're like, Why did, how did this happen? This was such a nice, good guy, good thing, good leader, good person. And granted, I think some people get fooled, um, but I think some people might want to be. Chaos and bad relationships um, like this occur because people do not choose to spend time to get to know the person. To dig, I mean to dig, and to ask some hard questions. To ask the right questions because we get so swept away by the expediency and the emotion and the excitement of the moment of where it's attractive at the expense of what's actually essential. We do this when we come in and judge churches, judge it based on what we see, what we hear, and we don't go to something like 1 Timothy 3 or any other of the scriptures that talk about what a church is supposed to be, what a preacher is supposed to be like. We just go, man, that's just really cool. We do that relationally as well. I used to talk to high school girls about this. Be like, what do you, you know, want in a husband? He's cute. Funny, you know, like anything else deeper than that, you know? Yeah, it's like high school girls, but come on. People can vote. 
kind of a problem, based on stuff on appearances. So it's easy for us, I think, um, well, what happens, I should say, when, that, when you begin to follow bad leadership by choice? I don't think you can blame things outside of yourself, although, yes, there's some fooling going on. Instead of unity and growth and joy, what happens is you get divisions, you get disagreements, you get discomfort, and you get divorces. Because you're left having to confront or just live in complete dissatisfaction and despair because you're unwilling to confront. And holding a line of truth, don't get me wrong, without compromise is the hardest responsibility for a pastor, for a parent, for a friend, for a sister and brother, for a man or woman, because it means the relationship will never be the same again. It's very difficult. And that's why verse 23, I think Paul's like, you better drink a little bit of wine, buddy. Because, you know, he's got this, he's drinking, this probably pretty bad water over there. But my guess is he's a little stressed out. He's got an ulcer growing in there. And the bad water's not helping. He's like, yeah, go ahead and, and take a little sip of wine to help your stomach. Because Timothy has to confront men who disrespect him, who are older than him, who still know him with some hard truths. And most people, like Timothy, who does it, but at first wants to run. He doesn't want to do it. And Paul's to plead with him to stay because it's way too hard. You just can't imagine, I can't say that. I can't, I can't. Who am I to say this, to rebuke? I've got my own issues. And it's easier to either ignore or hope things will change on their own, which, guess what? They won't. They won't. Sin just can't be wished away. It can't. And it's, it's easy for all of us to distance ourselves from this letter and from Timothy and go, well, I'm never going to be rebuking pastors and elders and ignore the confrontations that probably should be taking place in your first churches now, in your homes. There are a lot and I, I, I say this with, with all humility and grace, but there are a lot of bad pastors leading a, a lot of little churches in Damascus Road Church. There are. And some of you husbands and wives and moms and dads are preaching false sermons about what it means to love and lead like Jesus. The bad preachers. And no one likes to confront and no one wants to be confronted. And that's actually, I think, a lot of the reasons why people hop from church to church and they, um, or maybe just attend and remain disconnected so you don't have to get too close to someone who might actually confront you because they begin to like you and love you. And so you just kind of like, too close, move on, stay in a big church, I can hide. But if bad pastors are not confronted in homes, and it's not just men, you will build bad churches. Little churches. You will build bad homes. And the question is, do you have the strength, do you have the ability, do you have the desire to confront that person that you love? And if you don't, and I think of actually in particular marriages, Kayla and I have an agreement. It's a little bit different for us because I have elders who will get in my face. But you should have an agreement if you're a married couple or if you're single, you should be thinking about this in the future. And maybe you've experienced some brokenness where this would have helped. Where you agree when things are going well, that if things go poorly and bad preaching comes into your home, that you'll appeal to the elders for help. That you'll say, look, honey, if I go off my rocker, and I'm sinning, and you're not listening, we're in constant disagreement, you have permission to ask those men to confront me. Because I know they love me, and I love them, and we're part of a family. Do you have that agreement? You should. You really should. Not because the pastors are the ones demanding honor and obedience, but because it's healthy and good for you just as it's healthy and good for me to be confronted and to be held accountable by you and by the elders. 
Bad pastors don't need just time and more grace to figure things out. They need to be told this, that the failure to work like an ox in your home for the glory of God is not just regrettable or unfortunate or disappointing. It's sinful. It's sinful to not be leading your home. And if it's sinful, then it's not just an external issue that needs some practical fix or better management. It's an heart, internal heart issue that requires confession. That you might declare your brokenness. Stop faking like you got it together. You might say, I'm broken and I need a Savior. Not a pastor to save me, Jesus to save you. That you might confess, no matter how dark or hopeless or or unsure you are about what to do, know that Jesus says, those who are willing to confess, I forgive, to confess that Jesus works enough and my work sucks. If you are willing to do that, He promises to fill you with His Spirit, to renew you with His Spirit, to teach you by His Spirit, to empower you by His Spirit, to love and lead like Jesus. Your hope isn't in the ten steps that the pastor can give you. The one step I'm going to give you is confess. Confess. Go to the cross. He will help you. I will walk with you, but I'm walking almost behind you, shoving you towards Jesus, not the other way around. And as small as this church is, it is too big for me to pastor everyone. As small as this church is, it's too big for me to pastor everyone. We have to get close enough, you have to get close enough to let others into your life. And a lot of you don't. Maybe fearing what they might find. And if our first churches die, this church will die. If you do not lead in your home, mom, dad, husband, wife, if you do not work like an ox for the glory of God, this church will die. In 1 John, I love 1 John, although it's a very convicting book. I'll maybe preach it one day when I'm older. But 1 John says... We are to walk in the light. We love the darkness. Why? Because we can hide. But he says, we walk in the light so that we can have fellowship with one another. What's that mean? All my dirt goes away? No! We see all your dirt! And we confess it regularly. We confess with each other. And we fight for the glory of God as Jesus cleanses us together. We don't pretend the dirt's not there. We go, yep, dirty as all, get out, and I want to be clean. We walk in the light together. God intended for us, I believe, to live in gospel community where we see each other's dirt, we call it sin, we confess our need for the power and sufficiency of Jesus' blood daily. Daily. 1 John 1, 9, written to believers, if we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I need to be told that. I need to be told that, and so do you. So we need a church of people that think like shepherds who love one another enough to pastor one another, even if that means preaching a hard sermon to someone sometimes. Yes, we need sermons that encourage us. We need sermons that that give us joy. But there is a joy in being cleansed and released from your sin, and that's the number one sermon we actually need. And that's what we preach every Sunday when we come for communion. We're proclaiming that I am insufficient and Jesus is sufficient. That if any pastor is worth double honor, it's Jesus who truly shepherds all of us, including myself. Let's pray. Father God, I pray a prayer of thankfulness for all that You have done in Your Son, to bring us back into Your family. I pray, Holy Spirit, that You will break our hearts. That You will bring us to a place of confession where we declare we have not worked hard enough 
for your glory. You have done everything. And we declare positionally that we are righteous because of what Jesus has done and nothing we can do. But we also declare, Father, a desire empowered by your Spirit to work for your glory. That we might continually be cleansed, continually experience your joy as husbands, as wives, as moms, as dads, as men and women. Help us not to be prideful, Father, but to be transparent with one another and to walk in the light with each other. To fight with each other against sin and for your glory. Through the power of your Son's blood, we pray. Amen.